Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Socialism is hot today. What do we think about it? Today on City of God, I want to talk briefly about how to think about socialism. Now, some of you out there will know that communism and socialism are often conflated. There are some technical differences between the two. In uh, socialism, workers earn wages, and they can do with those wages as they wish. In, uh, in communism, the working class at least supposedly owns everything. Everyone has the same goal. There aren't wealthy or poor people. Everyone's equal. Uh, in socialism, workers are going to receive what they need to produce and survive but you're not going to be earning much more. There's no incentive to earn much more. There's little motivation to succeed beyond uh, mere sustenance. Today, if you're a young person in America, perhaps in the West, you are at least in some form going to engage socialism. It's very hard not to engage it, communism being in the shadows as well. And the church needs to think very carefully about how it talks about these things. One of the first things we need to say about these systems of thought. Again, I'm going to intertwine them. There are some technical differences, but I'm not sure that many young people would know that or be able to articulate them. I have just done so, but we need to make clear that both of these systems have a a very bad history. So if you're looking at 20th century history, you will see that you are going to find scant support among the poor peoples who lived under socialist and communist regimes by which to support these systems of thought. In other words, let's put it more simply— Socialism and communism do not work. They don't work. Ultimately, what ends up happening is that a big state, a government, ends up taking from workers, supposedly, depending on the regime, to distribute or redistribute, in more technical terms, those resources fairly to the entire populace. What ends up happening, however, in one historical case after another, is that given regimes enrich themselves, get engorged, and the average person, the average worker, does not. They end up poor, without basic resources, without even some of the most elementary needs uh, met in their lives. And so if you're looking across Europe, in South America, even in Africa in certain places, certainly in Asia, China, and elsewhere, you're going to see that socialism and communism don't merely have checkered histories, they have very problematic histories. So that needs to be very clear as we're engaging this discussion. We don't talk about philosophies. We don't talk about theology. We don't talk about worldviews as much as we can anyway in a vacuum, as if ideas are just ideas and they stay in white paper, in textbooks, or, you know, pixels on your screen. In actual fact, systems like these have been enacted and adopted by many countries across the world. And a quick scan at even a cursory level of 20th century history shows you that socialism and communism do not merely have deleterious effects economically for many people. In actual fact, governments of these kinds have repressed their people and have, in numerous cases, even conducted campaigns of violence against their people, leading to hundreds, thousands, even millions of deaths in the case of communist China and communist Russia. So we need to be very clear that the history of socialism and communism, these intertwined philosophies, is not good in the least. Second, 
we want to make very clear that Scripture has a different mentality. We think of a text like 1 Timothy 5.18, where the Apostle Paul quotes the Old Testament and says, Scripture says, do not muzzle an ox, this famous proverb, while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages, quoting from Luke's Gospel. So in other words, the Scripture indicates that a worker is deserving of the wages that he or she earns. We don't want to muzzle those to build from this metaphor. We don't want to muzzle those who are working hard. We want to grant them the rewards of their labor. Part of what takes place in a collectivist system is that workers do not enjoy the fruit of their labors. If they work harder, that that labor goes into the broader pool, but it does not redound directly to the benefit of that worker himself. And so that is not a fair system. That's not a fair system, and it's not a biblical system. A biblical mentality, of course, is very much going to encourage stewardship and generosity, philanthropy, especially in the form of giving to your local church, giving to missions, these kind of causes that evangelicals cheerfully and joyfully support. And yet that is not nearly the same thing as having a major percentage of your wages plucked from you in order to be redistributed to the workers of the party, so to speak. So we want to make clear that the Bible, and we're just doing this in a broad brush form, but the Bible has a different mentality when it comes to work in general terms, when it comes to earnings in particular terms. That's not to say by any stretch that we should hoard our money, that we should be greedy. The Bible does not incentivize greed. I would argue beyond that the fair market properly understood, the free market does not incentivize greed. And yet, we want to make very clear that the Bible also indicates that it is a good thing to work hard, and as God allows, and God must allow, for you to enjoy the fruits of your labor. You think of the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, 14 to 30. There is a faithful servant, the most faithful servant, the most gifted servant in that parable is awarded five talents when the master leaves, and that faithful servant goes at once in Matthew 25 to make five more. And then there's a second faithful servant who earns two more after being given two. And you recognize that a parable like this, of course, has first and foremost spiritual significance, and yet Jesus in that parable is giving a very positive picture of market exchange in a first century sense, I suppose. In other words, you go to this market and somehow uh, this worker, these two workers, make more talents. They invest their talents and they are rewarded for their investment and they, of course, bring that back to the master. What a beautiful picture in in bite-sized capsule form of the the mentality that I was just talking about that Scripture creates. In other words, that we, we work hard for the glory of God. As God allows, we earn a living and even beyond that, in God's kindness, we are able to provide for ourselves and our families based off of that living, ideally, but then we go beyond that and we recognize that everything we have is a gift. It's only given us temporarily by God to steward for a short little while on this earth, and so we are generous even with what we are given by the Lord, even with what we earn. Well, that is a very different mentality than people thinking that they pool all their resources as soon as they earn them, and then there is this very trustworthy figure known as the nation-state that redistributes said earnings. That is a, a different mentality and fundamental terms than the one I believe that Scripture sketches in various corners of the biblical text. So we're going to need to do this thirdly. We're going to need to train 
young people to think well about philosophy, politics, and history. And it needs to be said at this point, I'm not certain that evangelicals have always done a great job of instructing youth about these things. I'm not sure that we always have given our youth a great understanding of thinking in general. So let that be said. If you have listened to this podcast for longer than about 10 minutes, you will know that I believe that our first order issue in the church is to train students in sound doctrine and to give them a great love for sound doctrine and to think that sound doctrine is not only what's put down on a piece of paper that guards membership in a church, but it's actually the very lifeblood of the church and the individual Christian themselves. And yet, with that established, and let that be written in stone and carved into rock, it must also be said that we don't turn our brains off either when it comes to other areas of thought, other areas of the academy, for example. We want to unleash our, our youth to think well about all of life. We want them to build a Christian worldview, to use that often quoted term. We want them, in other words, to understand all the world aright, to view the world from a distinctly Christian biblical lens, reaping the harvest of wisdom from past faithful Christians in the process as a secondary witness. And so we want to do our part to train the rising generation to spot a lie, to think well from the Scripture, and then to do their best where the Bible doesn't necessarily address a precise economic system, for example, to think well about it from a biblical theological grid. Well, in order to do that, students need to learn more than just a thimbleful about philosophies, political systems, political thought, and history. We have a real responsibility, we recognize, when young people today sub in Twitter quotes and hot takes from talk shows for their political philosophy and do not do the hard work of, say, reading a book by Thomas Sowell on the free market or by Roger Scruton on the nature of the human person or Whitaker Chambers on the identity, the true identity of communism. We recognize that our youth are going to need to read about Chairman Mao's policy in communist China. They should read up on Stalin's regime in Russia. They should understand that these ideas can sound utopian and great on paper or on a screen or on a Twitter feed or on Instagram stories, but it's another thing entirely to investigate these realities in actual history. That reminds us, doesn't it, of the very historical nature of the Christian faith. Even when it comes to biblical teaching and biblical doctrine, we recognize that it is not given to us divorced from history, as if this theology is coming to us in a Ziploc bag, cut off from actual human existence. But these events that we are reading of in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, each testament inspired by God, fully inerrant, but these events are coming to us in order to teach us the doctrines the Scripture teaches. In other words, you cannot separate, separate historicity from biblical truth. The events and the, the doctrines that Scripture communicates to us are witness to us in history. So when we're talking about Jesus Christ, for example, we're not talking about a theoretical Son of God, as if the biblical authors put this Son of God figure together in their thinking, and it happens to 
merge really elegantly and nicely in the biblical mind. No, this Son of God, as presented by the biblical authors, is absolutely true in, in theological terms. All the dots intersect, all the lines fall in pleasant places, and yet this Son of God actually lived. He was a real historical figure. His actual life is, is witnessed to us exactly as God wanted it to be in the four Gospels in the New Testament more broadly. So we have a real stake. My point is this. We have a real stake in history. This is first and fundamentally true when it comes to actual biblical doctrine. This is also true beyond this in a secondary sense when it comes to the evaluation of extra-biblical ideas and extra-biblical systems. We want to look, in other words, at how they formed and what form they took later on in the actual events of space and time. We need to help people see that socialism and communism can sound very good and can sound utopian, as I have said, like they solve every problem. But in actuality, they do not solve every problem. They end up taking from people. They will even take all the way to the very existence of a person themselves if a government gets too powerful and too big. And Christians have a strong sense from Romans 13 and other texts of not entrusting their wealth, let alone their souls, their lives, to Caesar. Instead, there are certain things we must render to Caesar, but first and foremost, we must render to God what is God's. It can sound good when a young person hears a quick soundbite about a socialist system. It can sound like everything's going to be equitable and fair if we'll just do away with the old order, and usher in the new. Before we do so, however, before we dynamite the foundations of our society, as we are encouraged to do at numerous turns today, we need to actually think well about what is being said to us. That means we need to think coherently and logically and examine systems as they come. We need to do so first and foremost according to Scripture. We need to think according to biblical categories. We need to apply biblical principles to the modern questions that we face. And then we need to take our young people in particular to actual history and let them see that it is not only Scripture that tells us to beware utopianism, but it is actual history. It is soil drenched in blood, the blood of revolutions one after another in the 20th century in particular, that is a witness to us that reinforces what Scripture itself teaches. Help a young person today think well. Help them lash themselves to the mast of biblical truth. There is no utopia to be found in this world. The kingdom we all seek comes only in the name of Jesus Christ with his second coming, which we pray will happen soon and very soon. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. 
Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry context. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today.